Um, thanks very much. Uh, we're going to shift gears and finish the afternoon with discussions about COVID, and we have two great uh, talks lined up. Uh, the first is by Dr. Eileen Scully, who is at Johns Hopkins University and uh, has been doing work both clinically but especially in the lab, um, looking at the immunologic correlates of COVID infection and how it might be causing disease. And she's going to present that for us. And we're going to go immediately then into the talk by uh, Dr. Um, Sue Swindles, who you've met earlier today. And she's going to talk about long COVID. And we'll come back and have a 20-minute panel with uh, the two speakers, Dr. Lennox and me, to wrap up the afternoon. So, uh, Eileen, welcome. And uh, it's yours. Well, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm hoping the right slides are showing, and if no one says anything, I'll assume that that's the case. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the immunology and pathogenesis of COVID and no relevant disclosure. So the objectives for my talk are to describe features that contribute to differential outcomes in SARS-CoV-2 infection, the basis of the kinetics, basic kinetics of the immune response to SARS-CoV-2, and then list some features of immune dysfunction that are associated with COVID-19 and might be relevant. So I think always with a sort of more basic oriented talk, you have to justify it. So why is an immunopathogenesis talk helpful? So first, I think because mechanisms of disease may be a more direct pathway to therapeutics. And then from that perspective, COVID-19 is novel, but likely we'll have some shared features with emerging pathogens in general. And unfortunately, I think that may be a, something that happens again. Pandemic dynamics also right now may really help us to understand and advance the understanding of the pathogenesis of post-infectious sequelae of multiple infections. And I think that's a really important one that will sort of intersect with Dr. Swindell's talk. So first, let's start off by just kind of framing things. One of the most remarkable features to me of the SARS-CoV-2 epidemic has been the wide spectrum of disease. I mean, even when you think about something more in my personal wheelhouse of HIV, um, which I'm sure is the same for many of you, there is a spectrum of disease, but there are pretty reliable predictors of how most people are going to respond to infection. And that has just not really been the case with SARS-CoV-2. And so the first side of that is the host, the person who becomes infected. And there are a couple of things that we can think about that have been shown to have an impact, age, uh, male versus female, baseline immune status, comorbid conditions, and then some other things that are more emerging. So genomic variation, and then hopefully as we move forward, vaccination status will be the modifier that we've all been desperately waiting for. So what I've shown here are just some of the data from the UK Open Safely study, which was a large study of 17 million health records review-based um, analysis with over almost 11,000 deaths attributed to COVID-19. And we can see the impact of several features of the hosts. So here, the dramatic increase in the hazard ratio of, of death in a Cox proportional hazards model as you move up with each 10-year stratum of life, the increased risk in men as compared to women, and then the increased risk associated with obesity. And so many of these things, I think, have major implications for the immune response, and we'll sort of return to that a little bit later in the talk. But now first, let's focus a little bit on the other half of this equation. So you've got the host on one side and the virus on the other. So let's focus a little bit on the 30,000 nucleotides that have brought the world to its knees. So the SARS-CoV-2 virus has, like all viruses, immune-stimulating and evasion features. And some of those things may be relevant to understanding why we do or don't have a productive immune response. There's a few other factors that may play a role, play a role so exposure or the inoculum, how much you're exposed to, which in HIV we've seen that that matters as with undetectable is untransmittable. And then the potential role of viral variants. And so I'll spend a little bit of time talking about that as that I think is one of the 
the features that's more relevant right now. So what are the viral dynamics after infection with SARS-CoV-2? We're also familiar with those uh, graphs for HIV, but what happens with COVID-19 infection? So multiple studies predict a general pattern of a rise in virus titer in the upper respiratory tract and then resolution of upper respiratory tract um, uh, as the symptoms progress. So what are the things that we're not capturing with that measurement and that model? So one of the things is viral dissemination. So the sites of measurement have generally been the upper respiratory tract, either with nasopharyngeal samples, oral samples, or saliva. And are we measuring the places that are most relevant for both pulmonary COVID-19, for severe disease, and then potentially for long covid so there's a study that I've, I've shown some data from here, which looked at the rates of detection of SARS-CoV-2 in the periphery, so from peripheral blood. And what they saw in their hospitalized cohort was that up to 44% of people who required mechanical ventilation had detectable SARS-CoV-2 in their blood. This decreased for those who were only on nasal cannula and actually wasn't detectable among their, their subset of hospitalized patients who were on room air. That would suggest a nice tight relationship with disease severity. But the other thing in this study was that in non-hospitalized patients, so people who had symptomatic and nasopharyngeal swab positive, 13% of them did have detectable virus in the periphery. So I think this is an important thing to think about as we move forward in thinking who does and does not have long-term sequelae of COVID-19 infection. The other thing that's been challenging for me as I think about the quantification of SARS-CoV-2 is that unlike HIV viral loads, where you have that beautiful copies per milliliter measurement, the quantification of viral material, the denominator isn't always clear when we're using nasopharyngeal swabs. So just another way that we're a little bit hampered in our understanding of how the titer of virus, the amount of virus really impacts your response and your disease course. And while we have this, this general pattern, which is shown up here at the right, we do know that there are other variations. So even in the upper respiratory tract. So there have been ample reporting of prolonged asymptomatic shedding when people have detectable virus for a very long time. And actually, it's very difficult in most of those patients to find any infectious virus. And so we don't really know where that's coming from. This is not HIV. It does not integrate into the genome. So how we're having persistent shedding over time remains an open scientific question. And then there's also the impact of the host. So in immunocompromised hosts, in particular in B-cell depleted patients, there have been descriptions of individuals with repeated surges in viral load over time and actually with evolution of the virus during that time, which is a, a risk for developing a variants of concern. So now sort of turning to the question of variants, what do we know about viral variants and how they impact pathogenesis? So I'm going to use the B1117 variant as a sort of case example. So this has 14 non-synonymous mutations and three deletions, and eight of those are in the spike protein. So the protein um, that interacts directly with the host cell and has a, the receptor binding domain or RBD. And this includes the N501Y mutation in the receptor binding domain. So as you can see here in this next strain uh, snapshot, we're, the blue uh, dots here indicate emergence of that virus with the 501 substitution in the receptor binding domain in two separate lineages, one in South Africa at the bottom and one in the UK at the top. And that kind of emergence at the same time suggests a potential uh, advantage to this virus. So what do we know about this virus and how it behaves? Is it any different? So from a very small study looking at 65 people with uh, defined COVID, including seven individuals with B1117, there was this 
the signal that possibly the peak viral load, so the CT here indicated by the CT count, was higher for the B1117, and the duration of infection was a bit longer for B1117. And so this would fit with a model of slightly more virus in a slightly longer time, which could come together to increase transmission. So how does that fit with the epidemiology of this virus variant? So what I've shown here on the right is a figure from the science paper by Davies et al. that shows the dramatic shift from almost no B1117 to the entire UK being purple as that basically took over to be greater than 90% of the detectable virus. And so what they tried to do in this paper was model a couple of different ways this virus could lead to this outcome with either increased transmissibility, a longer infectious period, immune escape, increased susceptibility in children, you know, enhancing spread through that route, or a shorter generation time. And the short answer is that the modeling sort of plays out to suggest that there's increased transmissibility, which again could be indicated by both a higher local viral load and a longer infectious period. The longer infectious period model also fit the data, although slightly less well. Immune escape and shorter uh, generation time did not fit a modeling explanation for this this change. And the increased susceptibility in children was a moderately good fit, but was contradicted by their available testing data at the time. So giving a sort of empiric suggestion that that was not the reason for this spread. So overall, this all fits with the idea that this particular variant with a change in the receptor binding domain is more transmissible. So the next question is, is there an increased risk of severe disease or death? And as you can see, there have been a number of studies, which I summarized here in a table adapted from a commentary in the Lancet Infectious Disease. There were several studies from mostly public health data sets that suggested there might be an increased risk of death associated with infection with this variant. Reassuringly, in a a recent analysis in the Lancet Infectious Disease by Frampton et al., in hospitalized patients with confirmed COVID-19 in the November to December timeframe, so prior to the sort of overwhelming of the health system in in many of the locations that were studied, there was no difference between those who had B1117 and those who did not, which is also shown here in the bar graph over at the right. But I think the jury is still out on this and on several of the variants that have been circulating in different parts of the world. So the summary of the virus part of this whole discussion is that there are specific virus features and variants that may be linked to transmissibility and replication and clearance dynamics. Host features can change the shape of the viral decline curves. And what's unknown is if there's any features of virus dissemination or virus-specific features that contribute to long-term outcomes and and this question of, of long COVID complications. So now let's turn back to the other side of the host pathogen interface and think more about the immune response. So Thinking about what happens when the virus rises here with the dashed line, at the very earliest moments after infection, you should see your innate immune response with recruitment of neutrophils, monocytes, macrophages to the site of infection and secretion of cytokines to both control the virus and recruit other cells. And then over time, you have the rise of the adaptive immune response. So these are specific T-cell responses and specific antibodies, which can allow neutralization and clearance. So now let's go through a little bit about each of these different parts of the responses and and think about how they uh, have contributed to this epidemic. So early responses local to the upper respiratory airway epithelium are hard to study. And again, not really our wheelhouse. Again, in HIV, we've learned how to study vaginal epithelial responses and rectal mucosa, but this requires a very different kind of approach. 
So this is one study of 234 patients who had acute respiratory illnesses and were tested for SARS-CoV-2 with a nasal swab. And then they used that same swab to test for gene expression in the host cells. Now, of these 234 patients, 93 ended up testing positive for SARS-CoV-2, 41 for other respiratory viruses, and the 100 had no respiratory viral pathogen identified. So what were their findings? So they saw induction of interferon response genes in two patterns. And I apologize for the poor reproduction of this figure here, but um, these are two different interferon-stimulated genes. And if you'll just hang with me, I know it, it, it can seem a little confusing, but the red dots here recognize, uh, represent the other virus, so a non-SARS-CoV-2 respiratory virus. The black dots are no viral pathogen identified. And what you can see here is that the gene on the left has a bunch of the red dots clustered here at the top, um, so induced by those other respiratory viruses. And most of the people without respiratory viruses did not show strong induction. In contrast, in this other gene over here, IFI27, we see kind of a commingling with an increase in expression, but not that much different than those without a respiratory virus identified. So what happens when we layer in SARS-CoV-2? So instead of bunching it together as these other viruses are, we've spread it out according to the concurrently detected viral load. What we see here is that this OASL interferon-induced gene is induced by SARS-CoV-2, but really only at the higher viral loads is it comparable to other respiratory viruses, and not at these low viral loads where it clusters more with those that did not have a viral pathogen identified. In contrast, the IFI27, a different interferon-induced gene, is induced across the board pretty much in the SARS-CoV-2 samples and similar to or higher than most of the other respiratory viruses. So what about other findings in terms of other parts of the immune response? So activation of inflammasome genes, which has been another focus of thinking about the pathogenesis of of SARS-CoV-2, were again linked to viral load here showing IL-1-beta, one of the signature cytokines, and higher induction of that uh, expression of that gene with higher viral load. Cell recruitment of neutrophils and monocytes was in general found to be lower than for other respiratory viruses, which may be one of the reasons why this is initially um, that this virus is more able to establish severe infection and is not controlled locally. So what happens when we look systemically? So this is an analysis of plasma cytokine levels as a measure of innate responses. And we see here, the stratification here is by disease severity. So the HCW are healthy controls here. Moderate is in black and severe is in pink. And you see elevation in IL-6 and IL-18, although more modest for the IL-18, as you increase in disease severity with SARS-CoV-2. One very interesting thing, though, is that when you look at the time from the start of infection, we can start to see different patterns in some of these uh, inflammatory responses. So here, moderate is in the black and severe COVID-19 is in the pink. And you see for IL-6, both of these decline over time, regardless of whether you're moderate or severe. In contrast, IL-18, one of the inflammasome signature genes, sort of stays flat in the severe and declines nicely in those who have moderate disease. So what's important about these responses? Is this just watching what happens whenever a virus happens? Which ones have importance for outcomes? So I think genetic studies can give us some hints about that. The most remarkable one for me was this study of four young male patients with severe COVID-19 that were identified to have a mutation in TLR7. TLR7 is a viral sensing molecule that stimulates uh, the production of interferons and a lot of these downstream interferon responsive genes. And the increased susceptibility of these young men without TLR7 expression suggests that those interferon responses, whether or not they're as robust as those seen in other viruses, are actually important to the control of of SARS-CoV-2 and likely early on in the infection. 
In another study where they looked at um, almost 650 patients versus 534 who were asymptomatic, they tested a number of different loci to see if there was an enrichment for genetic defects. And they did find that in 3.5% of patients with severe COVID, there was a genetic defect in one of their candidate loci in the type 1 interferon pathway. So taken together, I would say that what these genetic studies suggest is that antiviral interferon responses are deficient in a subset of patients with severe disease. And this pathway is probably important in efficient control of viral responses. So to summarize overall, the innate immune response side, as with other respiratory viruses, infection with SARS-CoV-2 induces a local interferon response which with some variations in specific features. And we haven't identified which of those are significant to outcomes. Inflammasome activation is also a feature of disease and may be associated with higher viral loads and more severe disease, and inflammasome blockade has been considered as a therapeutic for SARS-CoV-2. And rare genetic mutations suggest that interferon and innate responses are actually quite critical in the control of SARS-CoV-2. So now to switch gears a little bit to talk about the other half, the T-cells and antibodies. The short way to say this is that robust T-cell responses are elicited in the majority of cases of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And extensive immune profiling suggests that there are clusters, but to be perfectly straightforward, these are very um, sort of complex, subsetted differences where you have certain patterns of activation in some populations and not in others that suggest that there's a, a most productive type of immune response, but not an easy pathway to induce that response in a patient who's already infected or to separate people based on their T-cell profile. The good news is that the vaccines seem to induce a functional and highly protective profile of T-cell responses, which in the end is, I think, the most important thing that we could ask for. In terms of the antibody responses, so antibody responses to SARS-CoV-2 are detectable in the majority of individuals here at about 19 days after symptom onset. This was an early paper that used both the nucleoprotein and the spike to detect antibodies. There are variations in titer and the target of antibody spike versus other domains and the antibody type IgG versus IgA. But overall, most individuals who are infected, and with the exception of those who are B cell deficient, do develop antibody titers. There does seem to be, in some studies, a relationship where a higher severity of disease may lead to more um, robust antibody titers, which has raised questions about those with minimal infection. Will they truly be protected from rechallenge? Will they have enough uh, titer of antibody? The other thing that was noted in a lot of this, in some of these studies of, of antibody production is these um, sort of atypical and extrafollicular B cell responses in severe disease that look a little bit similar to autoimmune uh, activation. And we'll come back to that in the end as, as we think about how COVID may be triggering uh, downstream dysfunction of the immune system. So what about the persistence of protective antibodies and protective immunity in general? So early studies suggested, as I mentioned, that lower antibody titers might be um, a problem with those with asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic disease. And it has been suggested that they're more likely to lose neutralizing level of titers. In a separate study that looked at a large cohort of patients with mild to moderate disease, about 90% of them did develop neutralizing titers. And a subset of 121 who were recalled showed only a modest decline at five months. That was from um, the Mount Sinai group in New York and was overall quite reassuring in terms of how protective uh, an infection is. And what I've shown here on the right is a post-hospitalization cohort follow-up of um, approximately 94 individuals with modest declines in titers at six months post-infection. As you can see here, the blue curve on the left is slightly higher median as compared to the red curve, indicating that there are um, 
a slight decline in titers over time, but still well above a neutralizing threshold. So the other really good news is from a com- like a sort of combined look at the whole immune response, so not just antibodies, not just T-cells. Antigen-specific T-cell responses persist over time with moderate decline. I've shown here the CD4 decline in that red line with days post-infection, which is overall, again, fairly moderate and maintaining good response levels. But what's shown here on the right is that one month and six months after infection, the majority of people, all the way up to these last few people who have uh, unfilled uh, bodies, maintain at least three out of five protective immune responses. Defining five protective immune responses is IgG antibodies, IgA antibodies, memory B cells, and specific CD4 and CD8 cells, all specific for coronavirus. So overall, the maintenance of this protective immunity is actually quite good. So now for the last just two minutes, I'll talk briefly about dysfunctional immune responses. So Autoantibody responses to interferons were identified in cases of severe disease. So these were individuals who had severe disease, and they were actually found to have antibodies that blocked the effect of interferon in their own cells. It's not known whether those antibodies existed prior to the infection and just led to the outcome or were induced by the infection itself. We do know that there are autoantibodies that appear during infection, including an IgM autoantibody targeting ACE2, the receptor for SARS-CoV-2, and increased frequency of ANA and antiphospholipid antibodies during infection. And in addition, there's this really interesting work coming out of uh, the Aaron Rings group at Yale, looking at the frequency of autoreactive antibodies as stratified by severity of disease. And so what you're seeing here is the frequency of autoantibodies to a number of different immune and other uh, factors, coagulation factors, um, platelet surface factors. And you can see that in patients with COVID-19, there was a higher frequency of having autoantibodies of many different specificities during or closely uh, timed near to uh, COVID-19 infection. And this may have important implications for considering the post-infectious um, sequelae. So what does immunomodulatory therapy tell us? We know that dexamethasone based on the recovery trial and tocilizumab also based on recovery trial has some benefit in patients with hypoxia, the latter uh, with hypoxia and elevated CRP. And I would say that it's unknown how these treatments impact immune dysfunction, but they do suggest that a component of the the pathology of COVID-19 is a dysfunctional inflammatory response that contributes to disease severity. So Immunologic mechanisms for long COVID, I think autoreactivity that could be persistent is one that needs to be considered. Viral remnants that are somehow misdirecting the immune system is another. And an immunologic set point that's been shifted by a severe inflammatory response is the final one. And I think questions for research around this are, will immunomodulatory treatments impact the rate of long COVID? We weren't using them in the beginning of the pandemic. Will it change now? And will there be, there's been these scattered reports of vaccines and inducing improvement and with mechanisms thought to be either redirection of the immune system, elimination of residual infection, which I I find that one hard to um, imagine, but, you know, has not been disproven, um, or just a sort of reset of the set point of the immune system overall. And then finally, whether autoreactive disease will be lasting versus transient. You know, when we see all those autoreactive antibody subsets, as many of us know, finding an autoantibody doesn't mean that it's actually causing a problem until you have a disease pathology. So I think we'll have to, more time will have to pass for us to understand the implications of those antibodies.
So finally, I guess I would say the conclusion. So I was trying to come up with one and um, I came across this, you always turn to your mentors, my, this quote from my mentor, Paul Sachs at, at, um, in Boston, it was quoted in the Boston Globe today saying, I wish I could tell you exactly what is going on, but the reality is that nobody knows. This was in reference to a different uh, question about COVID-19, but I think is also quite relevant uh, to this particular topic. So I think my le- next slide is the questions and answers, but I think that's going to be deferred until after Dr. Swindell's talk. 